can grab a seat. Satan, uh, the enemy, the deceiver, he's been doing what he's been doing for a really long time. He's pretty good at it. He's got a playbook of, of plays that he know tends to work with us when he wants to deceive or destroy ultimately is kind of his goal. And a lot of times we think that the enemy, we think that his primary objective with us is to try to get us to, to sin. And that's actually not the primary objective. That's, that's a byproduct. That's a downstream. The primary focus, the primary uh, intention, primary objective of the enemy is to get you to not believe God. And it's in not believing God that all sin flows. It's in not believing God that, that ultimately every sin that you might find yourself entrapped in started with. Satan attempts to erode our confidence in the nature and the love of God. He attempts to get us to perhaps question whether God is really good and perhaps whether God truly loves us. This has been his objective from the beginning because sin has been atoned for. There is a way to be freed from sin. The gospel tells us that there's good news. But if he can get us to not receive that forgiveness through unbelief, then he's won. He's destroyed us. That's his ultimate goal. Consider the garden, okay, Genesis 3, right? God made his good and perfect place and he put man in his good and perfect place and the enemy entered into the garden. And what did he do? He, he began to try to erode Eve's confidence in what? In the nature of God, the goodness of God and the love of God for Adam and Eve. He did this by saying, did God really say? He did this by saying, God is holding out on you. He has something that, that, that you should have and he hasn't seen fit to give you. Maybe he doesn't really care about you. This is always the enemy's ploy. This is always where he attacks us. It's always what he goes after us with. Now I want you to keep your finger in Hebrews chapter 12, but I want you to turn over with me to Luke chapter four just for a moment. I want you to see something here that's I think of, of great value and importance to, to our passage this morning. So Luke chapter four, keep your finger in Hebrews. That's where we're gonna do our study this morning, but Luke chapter four. Just for a moment. If you were to sit down and read the narrative of, of Dr. Luke, you would see that Jesus is just beginning his earthly ministry after 30 years of relative obscurity living in Nazareth. Uh, he, he grew up and then at one point uh, he became public and he went public. And this is the moment in Luke's narrative of the gospel where, uh, where Jesus goes public. Let's start in verse 1. Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So why is he full of the Holy Spirit? Because if you remember, he walked into the Jordan River and he was baptized by John the Baptist. And at that moment, God the Father spoke over him, affirming him in his ministry. And the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus and filled him, giving him the power that he was going to need to fulfill his three-year ministry. So after he's filled with the Spirit, this interesting thing happens, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness. I want you to see that. It's the Spirit here that's leading Jesus into the wilderness. It's not Jesus' decision. It's not Jesus' choice. It's the Spirit of God. It is God himself, God the Father, in the Spirit, guiding Jesus into a place of 
struggle, of suffering, of wilderness, of temptation, of, of darkness, of hunger. So what do you think? Does God lead us at times into struggle? Yes or no? Yes. Here is Jesus, filled with the Spirit, meaning he was perfectly tuned to the Father's will, led by the Spirit, meaning the Spirit's the one pushing him, nudging him out into the wilderness. Verse 2, for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. So here we have Jesus. Uh, he is in the ultimate anti-Eden space. Unlike Adam and Eve, who had everything they needed during, temp during temptation, unlike Adam and Eve, who lived in an innocent world, and like Adam and Eve, who had community and had God physically, tangibly there with them in the garden, Jesus is in the wilderness. He's alone. He's hungry. He's tired. He's in a very weak state, a very compromised state, a state that the enemy knows he can prey on. And interestingly, the Spirit has led him into this place in order that he might be tempted. Now, what I want you to see as we continue to read through this just quickly is I want you to see what Satan comes after in, in his attempt to try to deceive and tempt Jesus. Jesus is not sort of your average opponent, right? He, he is not, uh, he's not your average opponent. He is the ultimate man, the ultimate faith racer, as we'll see. Uh, he, he is going to be hard to deceive, and Satan's going to throw his best at Christ in order to try to trip him up. Why? Because if he can keep Jesus away from the cross, then he can put a hindrance between God and his plan of salvation. Okay? Satan hates the gospel. He hates the redemptive plan of the cross. He wants to stop it. And he knows that Jesus has come into the world in order to bring redemption, reconciliation to the world. So Satan is trying to stop this work of Christ going to the cross. And how is he going to do it? How is he going to try to stumble Jesus? I want you to see it. He doesn't go after the base sins that you and I often fall for. He goes deeper. He goes for something a few layers down. So here's verse 3. The devil said... To him, notice this, notice this. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. So this is essentially what Satan's saying. He's saying, hey, Jesus, if in fact, what is he doing? He's, he's sowing a suggestion that perhaps Jesus is not the son of God. If you're the son of God, then just take this rock and turn it into bread. Now, could Jesus have done that? Yes, why does Satan want Jesus to do something as seemingly amoral as just turn a rock into bread? Why does he want him to do that? The answer is found in what Satan says right before it. He says, if you are the son of God. In other words, Jesus, he's saying, if you really are loved by the Father, the Father would not be leading you to be hungry, would he? You see the lie? He's trying to get Jesus to believe this, that there is no sonship without hardship. That's the lie. He wants, he wants to get Jesus to believe that if God really loved him, he would not be suffering right now, right? And then he wants to get Jesus just, to, just even a centimeter out of the will of the Father, leaning on his own strength in order that Jesus would no longer be the perfect atoning sacrifice and the whole plan of redemption falls like a house of cards. You say, what's wrong with turning a rock into bread? Uh, well, nothing except the fact that the will of the Father was that Jesus would be hungry. And so what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do is he's trying to get him to question the love and the goodness and the nature and the kindness of his father. See? Keep going. By the way, let me, let me say this. Our, our human 
a soul level need for identity and identity and acceptance is actually a much stronger force than our pleasure, our desire for pleasure and comfort. You know what I mean by that? Our desire for acceptance, our desire to prove that we are truly something, that we are uh, truly who we believe we are, is a stronger compulsion than simply wanting to to uh, have some kind of fleeting pleasure. And Satan knows that. So when he attacks Christ, he doesn't just say, hey, here's something fleeting. He goes, let me attack your identity. Let me go upstream to the part where I know I can really get in your head. That's what Satan does because he's very crafty. He keeps going. Look, verse four, Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. In other words, I am full satisfied with this obedience to the Father. I don't, I don't need the bread that you're tempting me to make. Verse five. And the devil took him up, we don't know where, but he took him up to a high place, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, to you I will give all this authority for their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Is that true or false? It's false. If you then will worship me, it will be Yours. So here's what Satan's doing. Don't miss this. He pulls Jesus in his earthly state. He pulls him up to a high place and he shows him all power and all authority and all influence and all kingdoms. And he says, hey, I know that the father promised that he would give all this to you if you go all the way to the cross. I'll give it to you now and you can skip the cross. So what's the lie? The lie is that there's a crown. Listen, the lie is that there's a crown without the cross. That there's a crown without the cross. He's trying to get Jesus to skip the suffering part and just go straight for the glory because that's kind of what we want, isn't it? He's trying to get Jesus to go, you know what? I think I'd love to be exalted in a place of authority and not have to go drink the cup of wrath that he's dreading on the cross. So Satan is he's tempting him with that. And then we see the third temptation here in verse 8. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of a temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, notice what he's doing again. He's again calling into question the identity of Christ. Hey, if you really have a good father, if your father really loves you, if you're really the beloved of the father, if you really have the identity that you think you have, if it's really secure, he says, throw yourself down off the high point on the temple. Why? For it is written, he, the Father, will command angels concerning to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your feet against a stone. Here's the temptation, saying, Satan saying, if you're really the son, prove it. Prove it publicly. Get up on the temple. Jump off. And guess what? All the crowds will see the Father deliver you, and they'll know once and for all that you really are the Son of God. Do you see what he's doing? I really need you to see this. Do you see what he's doing? He's he's trying to get Jesus into a place where he is questioning the love of the Father for him. Why? Because it's in our unbelief of the Father's love and the Father's goodness that all sin flows. So he's, he's trying to erode the Son's confidence in the Father. And listen to me. He's trying to do the same thing with you every day. Every day. Does Satan tempt us to sin? Sure. But that's actually not his primary concern, is it? His primary concern is to get you to doubt the goodness of God and the love of God so that you begin to take things into your own hands 
and say, maybe I'll just make some bread. Maybe I'll just jump off now and speed up the process. Maybe I'll just avoid the cross because surely, just like Eve made that decision, surely God is holding out on me. Surely God is not good. Surely God could not be good and bring suffering into my life at the same time because those two things cannot be true, right? If God's good, then he must want comfort and ease from me, right? That's got to be the way God thinks. That's how I think. But we're going to learn today in our passages that nothing could be farther from the truth, that God is good, he is a father, he has paternal father love for you, and he leads you into struggle. How can he do that? Why would he do that? This is what our text answers this morning. The same lie that Satan tried to tempt Christ with and was unsuccessful, by the way, praise the Lord. And the same lie that Satan tempted Eve with is the same lie that Satan is tempting the church that the book of Hebrews was written to, which consequentially is where we are at this morning. So go ahead and flip back over to Hebrews chapter 12. The enemy is winning ground by lying to the audience that the Hebrews is written to and getting them to think that perhaps God is not really loving. Perhaps God's not really good. Because they're struggling, because there is tribulation in their life, because there's temptation, because there is tribulation in their life. And so they're really wrestling, they're really struggling, they're going, maybe we should leave Christ and go back to the way things were before Jesus, before the gospel. Because it seems like if God was really loving, he wouldn't be allowing all this hardship. And so the author of Hebrews is going to get in front of that now and he's going to answer that. Why? Because he is attempting through the letter of Hebrews to encourage the faith of these people that are reading the letter. These Christian ethnic Jews, he's trying to encourage their faith. Why? Because they're tired. They've grown weary. They've been running. And as they've been running this endurance race we learned last week, They've begun to run short on fuel. They've begun to run short on gospel nutrition, on, on kingdom perspective. They're not metabolizing the gospel and turning it into endurance and, and patience. They're just sort of drifting, becoming lax and, and slack in their faith race. They're not running actively. They're not running uh, with, with attention. They're, they're running, uh, they're, they're drifting. They're not running at all. And so the author of Hebrews, the pastor here, is encouraging these ethnically Jewish saints to keep running, to run with endurance. And how has he encouraged them up to this point? Let me just review the last couple of weeks for you. He's encouraged them uh, by reminding them that they are not the first to run the race. Remember the great cloud of witnesses that you read about in chapter 12, verse 1? This great stadium full of testimony that all of these Christians have run this race before you, and so you can run it. He's encouraged them by, by saying that they need to run light, that they can run light because the gospel gives them that freedom. He's encouraged them by, by saying, keep your eyes on this great resource that we have, which is the scorecard of Christ, that Jesus ran the race perfectly before us, and we get to share the podium with him because he was victorious. He's encouraged us, this is all in chapter 12, this is review. He's encouraged us by reminding us that we have this great example of how to run. Christ, who ran his race. He's encouraged the audience by saying, and by the way, you haven't even suffered to the point of blood yet. In other words, you're not even close to the point where you should be thinking about quitting. And now this morning, he's going to encourage them by reminding them of the purpose of sufferings, the purpose of struggle in their life, and that's what our text is this morning. So let's let's get into it. I'm going to outline it into three chunks. If you are an outliner, just three sections that you can write down. We're going to see three things here about discipline in our text. 
The first is the reason for discipline. And that's going to be verses 5 through 8. Secondly, we're going to see the result of discipline. Verses 9 through 11. And then lastly, we're going to see the receiving of discipline. They all start with R. Isn't that great? Doesn't that just make it so much better? <laughs> Sam's sermon was so good, they all started with R. It was the best. Just kidding. No one's going to say that. Okay. Uh, it's like a weird type A thing. It's like they all got to start with the same R. Okay. Let's just dive right in. First, the reason for discipline. Here's what he says in verse 5. Let's look at it again. And have you forgotten my, or the exhortation that addresses you as what? Sons, okay? And then he's going to quote here from the book of Proverbs, a passage that this audience would have been very familiar with. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines who? The one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. This is very basic. I don't need to spend a lot of time unpacking this. just want to make a few comments here. First of all, why is the author, if you were to read the, the chapter 12, why is the author all of a sudden switching over to the subject of discipline? Why is he all of a sudden concerning himself? And I think the answer is that he's getting out in front of the, the rebuttal or the response that he thinks the audience would probably shoot back with. He says, hey, run the race with endurance, um, looking to the author and finisher of your faith, okay? That's great. Someone's hand goes up in the back, the audience of the Hebrews says, yeah, but if God really loves us, why would he allow all this stuff to happen to us? Is the question that he's going to interact with, is the question he's going to answer. He knows it's coming, so the author sort of heads it off, and he says, let me speak to that. Let me tell you why things are hard. Let me tell you why you can take courage in the fact that there is struggle and tribulation right now. And he's saying, the reason is, the reason for the discipline is that you have a father that cares about you. You have a father who loves you. Now, let me, let me explain what this word discipline here means and what it doesn't mean here. When we hear the word discipline in our culture, depending on what your background is or what your history is, when you hear the word discipline, you might instantly go to the, the idea of punishment. Okay, that's not actually what he's saying here. The word discipline is not punitive. Listen, it's corrective. You understand what I mean by that? Punitive meaning it's not punishing in that it's, it's, it's trying to take something out of them or, 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 or return a payment. It's corrective. Okay, anybody have kids in here? Okay, we don't punish our kids, do we? What do we do? We correct our kids. We discipline our kids. What does that mean? It means we're not trying to, oh, you know, you, you did something wrong, so now you have to pay for it through punishment. No, it's how do I teach you, how do I instruct you to, to do something different. The Greek word for discipline is paideas, where we get our word uh, pediatric from, and it has to do with a paternal correction. It's a, it's a father, specifically in this case, a father disciplining, correcting, giving instruction and guidance to a child. It's the idea not so much of, uh, of trying to, to, again, punish them, but to say, how do I guide you and form you on the right path, is what he's saying. And so his argument here is simply this. Hey, you're going through hard things. What do you think that tells you? 
It tells you that you have a father who loves you enough to let you go through hard things. Now, there's two prongs to this correction, right? There's two prongs to this idea. One is, when we do something bad, God often will allow us to feel the natural results. Okay, we do that with our kids, don't we? Sometimes we need to let them feel the natural consequences so that they know not to go down that road. The other prong of this is sometimes we just need to let our kids have a hard time. Millennial parents, we're terrible at this, right? Gen Z's even worse. Like the helicopter parent thing, like can't let you go through anything hard, can't let you have any struggles. Okay, that's actually not good parenting. Good parenting actually says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna allow a certain amount of hardship into your life. Why? So that you're prepared for adulthood, so that you can function in a real broken, fallen world. That's what parenting looks like. So sometimes in calculated ways, you let your kids do something that might lead to a little bit of pain and discomfort. Bless you. So that... So that they learn, so that they grow. This is what good parents do. This is, this is really basic. Don't miss the forest for the trees here. This is really basic logic here. He's saying, because God's a good father, he doesn't hate you enough to never let anything hard into your life. Because God's a good, God's a good father and he knows that you live in a fallen and broken world, he loves you enough to let you go through struggle in order that you might grow and mature your faith. That's the whole idea. And he uses, he quotes the Proverbs here because he's trying to show the, the universality and the, the consistency of God's parental um, method for all of time. God treated Israel this way. When you read the Old Testament, you'll see God disciplined Israel, okay? Sometimes because they did something stupid. Sometimes because he was just trying to help them grow. He's a good father. He's a disciplining father. So the point of this first ch- chunk here is that the presence of the father, listen, the presence of the father's discipline proves the substance of the father's love. Okay, the presence of the father's discipline, again, don't just think punishment. Think God using and allowing hard things in your life. The presence of the father's discipline proves the substance of the father's love because if you're a child who is never disciplined, what does that mean? You don't have a parent or you don't have a good one. I remember years ago, um, I was much younger doing a juvenile hall ministry, and uh, we would go in on Sundays, and we would do church for, for the juvie kids, and there was this one young girl, 15, 16, and she was known all around town as sort of, you know, the hoodlum of all hoodlums. I mean, she was a rough, a rough chick. She, she was, you know, had, had already been hooked on meth at this point, sort of just very sexually promiscuous, very much a brawler, constantly in and out of juvenile hall. She was just a rough, rough girl. And I remember, uh, she's very intimidating. I remember going in and I was, I was teaching and I was talking about the law and I was talking about the Ten Commandments and I was trying to explain the fact that, hey, look, God gave us commandments in part because he wanted us to know what's good for us. He wanted us like a parent that gives us rules, that tells us don't do this or don't do that. And her hand shoots up, which was rare. She never, almost never talked. Her hand shoots up and she says, I don't get that. In fact, I think she said that's bold, something like that, expletive. <laughs> She was very, very kind of upset about that idea. And I said, what do you mean? She's like, I don't understand that. She's like, my my dad's never told me not to do anything once. And it it just, it it actually kind of broke my heart. Because I realized that this girl was where she was in part largely because her dad, who was strung out on drugs himself, had never told her no once. She couldn't think of a single time in her life this young woman who should have been protected, who should have had safeguards, who should have been, expla- danger should have explained to her, she should have been prepared to live in a fallen world. Instead, she was turned loose completely on her own. And because of that, she was completely consumed by sin and evil. 
And she could not fathom a father who would restrict her or tell her no. It broke my heart. This is kind of the idea here. The idea is, is, listen, you have a good father, and because you have a good father, he's letting hard things into your life. Now, guys, this is so unwestern. This is so unwestern. Like, we just can't get our heads around this, that God could be kind and loving and a father and not give us everything we want and not take all the hard stuff. We just can't get around that, right? Surely if God is loving, then he's always going to heal me and he's always going to answer my prayers and he's always going to take the hard things away because that's what a good father does. No, that's what a bad father does that spoils their kids. God is not interested in your comfort. God is interested in your internal, your, your eternal character. He's interested in your eternal joy. He's interested in your faith more than he is relieving any kind of immediate stress. See, we live in this culture that's, that's built around products that tell us if we just buy that product, our life will get a little easier. And we've taken the gospel and we've perverted it and made it into a way to help to, for self-help a way to make our life a little better. Hey, add the gospel to your life. It'll get a little comfortable, a little more comfortable. Hey, add the gospel to your life. You'll have a better marriage. You'll have a better job. You'll have a better this. We've, we've taken this idea of prosperity and we've shoved it into the gospel in such a way where when God does something or allows something into our life that is not good or easy or comfortable, we go, God must not be good. Same thing that Satan did in the garden. You see it? If he can get us to question the goodness of God, then when suffering comes, we fall apart. We fall apart because we assume that God is not good. So what is the call here? The call in our text, as you can see, if you look again, is to not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. What does that mean? It means don't shrug it off. Don't see it as invaluable, unvaluable. Don't see it as unimportant. When you're going through a struggle, don't see it as having no worth or value or purpose in your life. Do you know how big of a paradigm shift this could be for so many of us if we really saw it this way? If you got up this morning and you had something bad happen to you and instead of going instantly, oh man, how do I make the bad go away and God must not love me and all I just need to do is pray that the bad would go away. We go, oh, this is an opportunity to grow. Do you know how different life would look like? I mean, do you know how differently we would suffer? Do you know how much more grit we would have? How much more endurance we would? We would actually, in, in many ways, not in a sadistic way, but we would almost start to invite hard things into our life. You know, the difference between labor pains and sickness pains, okay? Sickness pain, it's just pain. It just needs to go away. There's no purpose other than your body telling you to, you know, that, that, it's, that it's broken. Labor pains are accomplishing something. See the difference? It's like the difference between going to the gym and getting reps in and breaking down muscle and knowing that's building muscle versus just going through pain for no reason. God, like a good father, is building our faith. He's building our maturity. So the reason for discipline is we have a good father that loves us. That's what he's trying to say here. Now, now let's look at the result of discipline. The result of discipline in verse 9. Now, having given us a scriptural example from the Proverbs, now he's going to give us a practical example from life that we can relate with. Verse 9, he says, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? What does that mean, Father of spirits? It's kind of an interesting phrase. Uh, all he's saying there is he's saying, Your earthly father was the progenitor of your body. 
God the Father is the progenitor of your entire existence. He created your soul and your body. Okay? He's the father of spirits. He's the, he's the father of you ontologically. He's the father of you at your deepest sense. He's the father of you uh, as your eternal creator, physically and spiritually. So he says, you have earthly fathers that disciplined you so that you could live and flourish, because that's actually the job of a parent, right, is to help your kids grow up, to live and to flourish and to be, uh, you know, uh, contributive members to societies. Your parents did that, and now God the Father is doing that. It's no different. Okay, uh, verse 10, for they, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a, note it, short time. A short time. Usually what, 18 years? About how long? You know, 18 years uh, is how long you're in your parents' roof usually, and then you kind of move out and you're your own person. So he's saying, you know, you have a parent physically, and that parent parents you for a short time as it seems best to them, which basically means according to their own wisdom and understanding. But he, the father, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. So the idea here is that our earthly fathers teach us what they know, which isn't much, and they teach us for however long they can, which isn't very long. But our heavenly father knows everything, and he's always working in us and always shaping us. You know, um, we raise our kids to be independent, right? That's kind of the goal, right? Right? Okay, you want them sleeping on your couch when they're 50? Okay, yeah. We raise our kids to be independent, and we teach them what we know. And, and how, long does it teach, how long does it take you to teach your kids all you know? It doesn't take me very long because I don't know much, okay? I mean, I'm already getting to a point where, I, like, my kids ask me stuff, and I'm like, don't know. Like, I'm already tapped. Like, you, you gotten all you're going to get out of me. Like, that's about it. You know, I, I think, I think my, 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 uh, my, my daughter, my oldest daughter already knows more than me in some areas. And uh, so there's a realization there. But here's the thing about God and his kids. Okay, God doesn't run out of things to teach us. And therefore, uh, God is not raising us to be independent. What is he raising us to be? Dependent. See the difference? We're trying to wean our kids off of us. God's trying to teach his kids to depend on him entirely because he has all wisdom and all knowledge. He's trying to grow us up to where we always come to him. The more mature the believer, the more the believer is dependent on the father. See? So he is trying to get us to see here through a very earthy and practical example that we respected our earthly fathers when they disciplined us, so how much more should we respect our heavenly father when he disciplines, when he trains, when he corrects, when he builds us up? Now, what is the result of this? Why does, why does he disciple us? What's the outcome of his discipline? Pardon me. What is the outcome of his discipline? We see it in verse 10. Firstly, it's so that we can share in his, what? Holiness. We can share in his holiness. So, follow me. He's disciplining us like a good father. He's maturing us, correcting us, leading us, guiding us to grow us up so that we might share in his holiness. Okay, Sam, what does that mean? Okay, well, holiness is the Greek word hagias. Okay, and it just means other. God is holy. What does that mean? You ever heard that phrase? God is holy. It means God is other. God is in his own category. There's no one like him. There's no one even to compare to him. There's nothing that we can grab, no analogy, no created thing that we can use to get our heads around just how other God is. He is other, and he is not in any way part of sin or evil. He is completely distant from it. He providentially allows and uses it, but he himself is perfect, holy, righteous, other than. 
He's a holy God. So, listen, the reason God's allowing struggle into our life is so that we might share in his holiness. We might share in his holiness. You know, the greatest gift that God can give you is himself. I think you need to hear that again. The greatest gift that God can give you is himself. He's holy. You know, people all the time, like, like critics of the faith, people that are curious about Christianity, they go, isn't God a narcissist? Like he, he made you so you could worship him forever? Isn't that, isn't that prideful? Like, yeah, but it's not sinful. Why? Pride's only sinful when it's false. God is the center of all glory and joy and power in the universe. For him to give you anything other than himself is actually unloving. So God saved you so he could give you himself. He's the, he's the greatest gift. He didn't just save you so you could have a better life. He didn't, just, he didn't just save you so you could have your best life now. Sorry, Joel. Okay? He didn't, he didn't save you for that. He saved you so he could give you himself because there's nothing greater than him. So when it says that he's allowing discipline into our life so that we can share in his holiness, my paraphrase of that would be he's allowing discipline in your life so that he can give you him. He can get you to a point where you're actually believing and being sanctified in him. The process is called sanctification. You know, sanctification has the word holy in it. It's actually, it's, it's sort of the, the verb form of holy. It's, you could, sanctification could be holied. So when you get saved, you start the process of getting holied. Okay, and that doesn't mean you're becoming more righteous positionally. It means you're growing up into who God has already, uh, the righteousness that God has already given you in Christ. That's sanctification. So God allows discipline in our life so that we can be, uh, so we can share in his holiness and then we see another reason, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It just does. It's painful rather than pleasant. Okay? Just like exercise. Exercise is painful. It's painful rather than pleasant. But later, he says, it yields, note it, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So here we get another result of, uh, of God's um, discipline in our life, not only does he make us to share in his holiness, he also brings us to a point where we have the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Let me double click on that phrase. Peaceful fruit of righteousness. How does the discipline of the Lord lead to peaceful fruit of righteousness? What does that even mean? Well, righteousness, you can think about the word this way. Righteousness could be thought of this way. It could be rightness. Okay, have you ever heard righteousness thought of that? Rightness, meaning righteousness means you are right. You, you are the way you ought to be. Things are the way they ought to be. Now, the opposite of righteousness is sin, which is unrighteousness, and that is a perversion of what is right. So when you are righteous, it is to say you are as you ought to be. When you are unrighteous, it is to say you are not as you ought to be. So sin is ultimately a twisting, a perversion of what God made right. Anything outside of God's nature, God's will, God's plan is wrong and unrighteous. So the, what is the peace of, or the peaceful fruit of righteousness? It means that when God works righteousness in you, you have great peace. Most of our peace, I believe, most of our lack of peace, I should say, Follow me. Most of our lack of peace comes from a deep-rooted, deep-seated fear that perhaps we are not right. That's why I think, back to our introduction, that's why I think Satan went after that in Christ, in his humanity. 
He tried to tempt Jesus to tune into this idea that perhaps he was not right with the Father. Perhaps he was not right for the job. Perhaps he was not right in that he was truly loved by God. But maybe there's something lacking in him. That was the temptation. That was the lie. So to experience the peace of righteousness is to take a deep breath when you realize that I am I'm right with God. Seriously, most, almost, I would say almost all of your anxiety, if you were to trace it back, comes back to this one simple fear, and that is that perhaps I'm not right. Perhaps I'm not right with God. Perhaps I'm not right with man. And that's why we, are, we have this insatiable appetite for approval and affirmation. Someone tell me I'm right. That's what social media is in business. Social media is one giant pool of people wanting to be told they're righteous. Hey, look how many miles I ran today. Hey, look at, my, look at my smoothie this morning. Someone tell me I'm right. Hey, hey, look, look at this sweet filtered picture of me with my kids. Someone tell me I'm right. What are you listening to, Bob? You got the, got the baseball game going? Okay, yeah, sir. Someone tell Bob he's right. He might be struggling right now. <laughs> You're texting me a note. I'll read it later. Okay. So much of our lack of peace, so much of our lack of peace is a result of unrighteousness. And whether it's true or just perceived, it's the reality. And so we go through our day, try, someone tell me I'm right, someone tell me I'm right, someone tell me I'm right. The peace here that he's saying the discipline of the Lord brings is that you have the peace of the fruit of rightness. That's what happens in the second that you believe the gospel. You don't need to get on and post something. You don't need to fish for affirmation. You don't need to go and work more hours so that you can feel right, right? Because you go, I am right, not because of my own righteousness, but because of the righteousness that has been given to me as a gift. It's been accredited in my account. I've been made righteousness. I'm accepted by the Father and my deepest core identity. I don't need anything. That's the fruit of being right with the Father. It's the gift of the gospel. So maybe you're saying, Sam, but how does that connect to my suffering? How does that connect to my struggle? Because listen, without tribulation, without hard things in our life, we never actually start to shift our affections and start to shift our identity and start living into who we are in Christ. We just keep looking to this world. We keep drinking from the swamp water of this world, hoping it's going to quench our thirst. But it's in tribulation and struggle that God matures us to a place where we're drinking from his well. That's why struggle is so valuable. It's invaluable. You have to have, you understand, you have to go through it. Your faith will not grow when things are easy. I know you like it. I like it too. I mean, we're addicted to ease in our culture. Like, I want easy. Your faith will not grow with easy. You need hard. God knows that. He's a good father. He's bringing hard into your life, not to punish you, not to pick on you, not to be cruel to you, but to help you develop a faith muscle. And it's in that faith muscle that you experience ultimate joy. Because ultimate joy is not found in ease. It's found in faith. Are you guys tracking with me? Okay. So, everyone, let, let, let me ask you this. How can we really know, though? I mean, how can we really know that the Father is really loving when he allows hard things in our life? This is actually one of the questions I think people ask almost the most. How could a loving God 
Let people get sick and die. How could a loving God let hard things happen to people? I want you to see something that I think the passage, it's implicit more than explicit, but I think the passage, it, it needs us to see. Okay, and that is, go back to verse 3 of our text. I want you to remember these words. Verse 3 of our text, the author here says, Consider him, who's him? Good job. Consider him, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. What's that talking about? It's talking about the cross. It's talking about the beating of the cross, okay? Consider him who endured the cross. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. So one of the things that we need to do here as we try to understand suffering and, and struggle and tribulation and God's work and will in it is we need to look at Christ because Christ is our example. And what we see in Christ is that we see that the Father led the Son to struggle. That the Father led the Son to the cross. That the Father led the Son to the hands of the sinners who beat him and spat on him and mocked him. That the Father led him to be rejected and denied by his best friends. That the Father led him to the place where he drank the cup of wrath for you and I so that we could be saved and forgiven. The Father led Christ to that. So if you're going to say, how could God the Father be loving if he allows suffering, then you would have to say then the Trinity with the Trinity itself is not truly loving because God the Father led his son to suffer. And I think this is what the, 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 the biblical author wants us to see here. If God is loving enough to send his own son, whom he loves so much more than anything else, how much more would he lead us to suffer in tribulation? Let me just take you to, to one passage, Hebrews 5, uh, verse 8. Just flip over really quickly. This is a review. We've talked through this before, but this is very important. It's very important. Hebrews 5, 8. Here's what I want you to see. Hebrews 5, 8. Although he, that's Jesus, was a son, okay, so, so here we have father-son thing going on, just like our text, right? Father-son, track it with me. Although he was a son, Jesus, he learned obedience. Now stop there. You should ask a question. Jesus was perfect, right? 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 Okay. Let's make it sure. It was perfect. So why did he have to learn obedience? Right? If, if Jesus was perfect, why did he have to learn obedience? Okay, and, and the answer to that is actually not as complicated as you think. Because learning obedience for Christ does not imply that he was disobedient. Jesus was not disobedient at any point. He was the perfect spotless lamb. He never at one point was disobedient. He learned obedience. What that means is that Jesus had to build and mature his faith. He had to learn how to trust God. Because in his humanity, he started at level one, just like you and I. Though he was fully God, he was also fully man. See, he added humanity to his divinity. And where did his humanity start? Did it start at age 30? Or did it start at infancy? So Jesus had to grow up. He had to grow up. And as he grew, he had to learn how to trust the Father. That was very intentional to God's design of the gospel. He had to learn so that, there's a lot of reasons, so that he could relate to us and what it looks like to learn how to trust the Father. He had to learn so that he could be the perfect sacrifice who lived 33 years of life of perfection and impute that life to you. 
He had to learn obedience. That doesn't mean he was disobedient. It just means he learned obedience. Now, here's what I want you to see. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what? What he suffered. How did Jesus, in his humanity, learn obedience? Through suffering. He had to suffer. God the Father had to allow God the Son to suffer so that he could learn to trust the Father. And here's verse 9. And being made perfect. That's not to say made perfect as though God has some flaw within him, but being made perfect in his humanity, being made perfect in his humanity, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So here's just my point. It's very simple. If you suffer and you begin to question, how could God love me and allow this suffering, then you have to wrestle with this question, did the Father love Christ when he allowed Christ to suffer? And of course the answer is yes. It would compromise, listen, it would compromise the very integral nature of the Trinity if, if you said otherwise. To say, oh, God the Father didn't really love God the Son. Well, then God is no longer God. The Trinity falls apart. The Trinity is orbits around this one eternal reality that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are an eternal love. They are a community within themselves, fully satisfied in each other. We see this all throughout the prayer of Jesus in John 17. Jesus said, give me the love that you had before. Restore that love to me. The, the, the love of the Godhead, that's where love begins. See, love is not a feeling, it's a thing. It's, a, it's, it's actually something that is sourced in God himself. I'm getting into the weeds here. Here's the point. There was value in the suffering of Christ. Therefore, there is value in the suffering of Christians. Is that logical? If, if, if God used it for Christ, are you so good that you don't need the same path that your Savior took? That's what Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. It was, it was, it was his way of saying, you're going to have to go through the same path that I had to go through. Because Jesus is the faith racer. He already ran the faith race. And in his path, he had suffering, and so will ours. Okay, now let's try to turn the corner here from some of the high up kind of ethereal stuff, and let's try to get down into the ground a little bit more and ask the question, so what? So what do we do with this now that we have this understanding? And the author's gonna take us here naturally in verse 15, or 12, pardon me, verse 12. He, he naturally comes out of this statement about the discipline of the, the Father, and he brings it into an imperative. Okay, he brings it to us, so what? Here it is in verse 12. Therefore... We're back in uh, 12, by the way, 12-12. Uh, 12, 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So interestingly here, he actually reintroduces the race metaphor that he was interacting with earlier when he said, run the race of endurance. He pulls the race metaphor back in and he brings, brings it kind of back to a, to, a, to a point. And he goes, look, you're running a race. You're running a race of faith. So here's some specific things you can do, some actionable things, some steps you can take today to continue to run your race. He's gonna give three things. The first is activate your muscles. Activate your muscles. Look, he says, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. In other words, this is my paraphrase, get off the couch. Get off the couch. I had, I had an interesting thought I probably shouldn't even share. Yesterday, I was like, I wonder how many of our societal issues would go away if we took everyone's couch and smartphone and TV. 
Should I run for, like, should I run for office now? <laughs> Could I run on that? Like, we're going to take everyone's couch. <laughs> Vote for me, 2029. Okay, anyways. No, but, like, this is the problem. The problem with this, this audience that's listening to this letter is they've, they've stopped running. They've stopped running. They're still in the race because they've been born again. They're saved. They're called. They're elected. They're adopted. But they've stopped running. And, and the problem is when you stop exercising and then you try to get out and do something. I see this happen all the time with guys that used to be studs. And then like 10 years happened and a lot of couch time happened. And then we like go backpacking or something. They're like, dude, I'm going to crush this. I remember in the military. I'm like, yeah, that was a long time ago. Right? <laughs> and then they get up the hill and they're dying. Right? And they're like, I don't understand. I used to be able to do this. I used to like blah, blah, blah. Okay. The, the reality is, if you stop using the muscles, they go away. And what he's saying here is he's saying, you better get out and run. You better get back into the race, because if you don't, you're going to get hurt. He's saying, activate. Get in the race. Start running. Okay, and this is like so simple, but I feel like somebody needs to hear this this morning, including myself. Some of you guys are simply not running. You're just simply not running anymore. You're like, yeah, I used to be passionate about Jesus. I used to read my Bible. I used to pray. Like, yeah, I pop into church every once in a while. You know, I listen to a podcast here and there, but man, that's about it. You're not running. The call of the Christian faith is a call to run. It's a call to run. You're not on a bike. There's no coasting. You got to keep running. You got to keep running. You, you can't just, and, and the, the longer you sit, the more you're going to get hurt. And the harder it's going to be. If you think that pain is needless, then you'll stop running. And that's why a lot of people stop running. They stop running because it got hard. It was just easier to tune into the world and see what they have. It's just easier to drink from the swamp water of social media and the swamp water of pornography and the swamp water of spending money online shopping and the swamp water of whatever you're tuned to. It's just so much easier to get up in the morning and get my dopamine hits from everything that this world has got. It's just so much easier. I'm just going to coast for a while. I'll get serious about my faith later. No, get serious about your faith now. Now. That's, the, that's the, the, the whole point he's saying is you lift your drooping hand. Get your lazy hands up and start following after Christ. It's not about working for your faith. It's about working in your faith and working on your faith. Christian life takes a lot of work. It does. So he says, activate your muscles. Number two, he says, pay attention to your path. Pay attention to your path. He says, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet. We were cave exploring uh, <clears throat> a month ago or so. It was funny, me and my, my uh, wife and my kids, and we had the bright idea to only bring a couple flashlights because, you know, we could share. Uh, st stupid idea. So, so you know, my, my son, who I think he was seven at the time, but he's eight now, uh, we, we let him hold the flashlight for a while, but the problem is, like, we needed him to hold the flashlight down so we could see. And he was really excited about seeing bats. And guess where bats are? Up. So like every five seconds, he's like, boop. And we're like, trust us. Hold the light down. I can't see, buddy. Like, but there's bats. I want to see a bat. You know? So it was like this kind of funny struggle. Like all the way through the cave. He just kept looking. Kept looking. So finally, gave him, you know, what, what I found better worked actually was give, give it to my youngest daughter. because, And I attached it to her head. And I said, okay, you just look right there. And I'm going to hold your hand. And I'm going to follow you. Okay. We're good. Here's the reality. You got, you got to look at the path that you're on. You got, to, you got to think. He's saying, make straight the path for your feet. In other words, think about how you're running. Think about where you're running. I want you to think back to where we started in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus was being tempted. What was the response of Christ to all of the temptations of the enemy in general? Where did they all come out of? They all came out of the scripture. In fact, they all came out of the same book in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? I believe it's Deuteronomy. 
What does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus had been meditating day and night, chewing on, looking at God's word, so that when temptation came, when tribulation and struggle came, he was ready. He was ready to deflect those lies, man. He was instantly ready to to deal with anything the enemy could bring because he was all filled up. And at the same point, too, Jesus had spent 30 years building his faith so that he was ready for his three years of ministry. It takes training. It takes work. Engage in it. I say this all the time, but for some reason in Western Christianity, we're so afraid of talking about work because we're so afraid of becoming legalists. We're like, no, we did that. Martin Luther fixed that. Yeah, I get it. Okay, but work is still part of Christianity. Okay? You're saved by grace, and then you get to work. Okay? It's, 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 it's something you need to be active in, active in your faith. And then thirdly, and this is important, we'll, we'll close here. Thirdly, he says, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather, what? Be healed. The reality is, some of you have stopped running, but what I want you to see here is that if you keep your eyes on Christ... There is healing to be had. You can get back in the race. Okay? You can get back in the race. The, 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 the point is to make straight your path by putting your focus back on Christ, and it's going to get you back in the race. So my, my encouragement, my call to you, the, the text's call to you this morning is to see that you're in a race and to start running. And how do we do that? Well, we already learned that. Let me review. How do we do that? We do it by looking under the author and the finisher of our faith, who is Christ, the champion, the pioneer, the beginning the faith racer. We get our eyes on his work, his perfection. That's the gospel. And then we run in his victory. The enemy wants nothing more than to get you to doubt the love of God, to get you to doubt the kindness of God, to get you to doubt the goodness of God. And the antidote to that is to fill your mind, fill your life, fill your heart with the good news of the gospel, which at its very heart proves of God's love and God's goodness for you. The work that you put in, I say this every week, the work that you put in is the work that it takes to keep believing the gospel. To wake up every morning and say, I am right because I've been made right and now I can run. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Hebrews. We thank you, Lord, for just the, the amazing realities of faith that we've learned. God, we thank you for this race that we're running. We thank you that, Jesus, you ran it better and you ran it first. We thank you that, Lord, we run in your victory. We run in your grace. We run in your favor. And this morning, Lord, I just want to pray over everyone in here this morning that, that is a believer. They, they've, they've entered into the race. They've, by faith, they've been saved. They've been born again, and, and they just have simply not been running. God, I pray that your kindness would lead them to repentance. God, that you're not scolding them. You're not a father standing over them with a stick, disappointed in them. God, rather, your arms are open. You're inviting and calling them graciously to come back and engage in their race. Help them to know what that looks like today and tomorrow morning and this week. And God, for those that have been running and have been faithful, they're just weary, God. Would you metabolize hope for them? God, would you give them that nutrition that they need? Spirit of God, would you fill them with encouragement? And Lord, for those in this room this morning that have not yet begun the race of faith, that are still questioning and curious maybe about who you are, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would reveal truth to them, that they would talk to someone, that they would be prayed for, that they would receive by faith Christ and be born again. Lord, we all need you. There's no question. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.